Welcome to the European CME Forum podcast. European CME Forum is a not-for-profit organization that promotes multi-channel discussion on matters relating to European and global CME CPD. My name is Eugene Pozniak. I'm the program director of European CME Forum. This is the second of four podcast episodes where I'll be speaking with the moderator of a plenary session taking place at 14 ECF this November. On today's episode, I'm joined by Robin Stevenson, Editor-in-Chief of JackMe, who will be moderating the plenary session on Educational Design and Outcomes. Educational Design and Outcomes is the second leg in our model of the three-legged stool for achieving balance for effective CME. The focus of today's episode is Robin's involvement in the European CME Forum and also an update on the changing world of CME CPD. Hello, Robin. Hi. Now, thank you for joining me for to discuss 14 ECF and a variety of other things as well, I hope. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Oh, excellent. So just to start off, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Maybe, you know, for the, for the people who might not be uh, familiar with you or uh, have met you before. Well, oh, okay. Uh, for most of my life, I was a consultant physician specializing in chest medicine in Glasgow Royal Infirmary. And I retired about 12 years ago. But in the 10 years before I retired, um, I became interested in, in continuing medical education. That was initially through my association with the European Respiratory Society, and also by representing uh, respiratory medicine for the UK in the Union of European Medical Specialists, UEMS. <clears throat> and I ended up on the, the committee for accreditation of CME for the European Respiratory Society. And I, I started off as a committee member, and then I became the uh, president of, the, of the, the committee. And in fact, while I was president, we changed the nature of the committee. So it became one of the very first ESAPs, which is the, as you know, the European Specialty Accreditation Boards. And that we did that, uh, we, we set that up as a, a joint venture between the European Respiratory Society and UEMS. Um, and I continued doing that until I think shortly after I retired, no, just about when I retired. And at that time, of course, you decided uh, uh, to start the Journal of European CME, JECME. And you asked me to be the editor of it. And I was pleased to do that because my previous uh, job as president of, the, of, the, of EBAP, the European Board for Accreditation in Pneumology, had just come to an end. And I was very happy to continue my interest in CME in, in, the, in the capacity as the editor of the journal. And I've done that um, with greater or lesser degree of success over the last 12 years. Although, in fact, I think there's been rather more success in the last two years than, than the previous 10. And, and so I think that's my history uh, of uh, CME. I suppose the only other thing I might say is that during lockdown, my therapy was to write a little book about CME and CPD, which, uh, which I'm pleased to say uh, is, as you know, <clears throat> is, is going to be published uh, next year, early next year. Great. Yes. So thank you. Thank you for that, Robin. And of course, yeah, the first time we met, I think, was I was probably at UEMS meetings, but the very first European CME forum, you were there as chair of EBAP, bringing the background of ESABs and uh, the accreditation systems. And, and you've been one of the very few people who've actually been at every single European CME forum since. Yeah. And Jack, me under your guiding hand. Yeah, it takes it does take forever in this in uh, the CME environment for for things to settle down and evolve and and yeah it's true and in 12 years it's it's it feels as though JECME is now really just starting to succeed and get the sort of the international attention that we hoped for all those years ago yeah it takes a it takes a good 10 years for a, a good idea to take off it seems to be so but anyway it, as you know with the special collections of last year and this year we've had many, many more submissions than we ever had before. And uh, that uh, many more this year than, than last year. So it, it, it seems to be going in the right direction. Yeah, no, and it really shows that there is a need out there for people to actually <laughs> share what they're doing, share best practices. 
and and there are quite a few sort of first-time authors as well who've submitted to the journal which is really pleasing to see and especially from from Europe which is really what we set out right from the beginning with uh, setting up JACME so to encourage people to actually write about CME you know outside of the sort of the academic North Americans you know, especially the Canadians the Americans who who publish so regularly very high quality papers but it's just to get the Europeans to catch up in some way and actually share their views as well. Well this is a huge difference between Europe and North America because CME in North America has always been associated with the academic institutions, with, uh, with medical schools. Whereas, and, and so they have developed a tradition of, of research into CME. And indeed, all the research of any substance in CME has happened, uh, has taken place in North America, particularly Canada, but also the US. Whereas in Europe, CME has never become associated with academic institutions or with medical schools. And it's been run by royal colleges uh, and uh, perhaps sometimes deaneries, but it has never been a part of uh, an academic discipline with a tradition for doing research. And so it's taken a long time for us, I think, to persuade European CME people that, that they ought to be uh, interested in, 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 in carrying out research projects and in, and in writing them up for, for the journal. And now it seems as if perhaps that message is getting through. At least I hope it is. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And if you sort of have a hope for the future of JECME and, and this sort of academic pursuit in, in Europe, which groups do you think should be devoting more time to, to CME and, and sharing it? Well, I, as, as you and I uh, know, we have always been aware that the European uh, specialty societies or specialist societies in medicine um, have been very slow to take up um, an academic interest in CME. And we have tried, not always successfully, to, um, to interest them in, in academic CME, as it were, because they are, after all, the main pro providers of CME in Europe, the European societies, as well as, of course, the national specialist societies. But they all seem to have felt that they knew all about education. They'd all been through medical school. They had all taught medical students. They'd all lectured to medical students. So they didn't, they didn't appreciate that CME was different from uh, curricular education, from the kind of education that happens in medical schools or the kind of education that postgraduates take part in as part of their training. Uh, the, the CME community does know that CME is different. It's adult education as opposed to uh, education for children. It's, it's uh, according to the work of Knowles, as you know, it's andragogy instead of pedagogy. And we have had difficulty in interesting the societies in this difference so that they can modify their teaching behavior in the light of what we know about edu adult education. However, hopefully now um, uh, more of them are, are becoming aware of the possibilities for changing their practice and particularly because we have managed in the last two or three years to develop an association with the Biomed Alliance which is the organization which acts as a, an umbrella organization for the European specialty societies and Biomed Alliance now looks as if it has bought into the idea that uh, there are more, there's more potential in their CME activity than perhaps they thought previously. Yeah, no, indeed. And it's looking promising. And, <laughs> and especially in our COVID era, as so many, so much education is going online, it's now digital, and our learners can go to a number of sources to actually source their education. We see that many organizations, including especially societies themselves, really need to now think more about their learners and the, uh, the relevance and effectiveness of their own education in order to attract and keep these learners coming to them rather than losing them to other sources. I'm sure that's right. I think, I think, uh... COVID may have been very bad for many people for lots of reasons, but it may actually have been quite a good thing for the CME community in Europe because it's it encouraged people to look at what they're doing and in a more critical way than before and modify what they're doing to make it more effective. 
I think that has happened. As you know, the, the title of this year's special collection is Digitization in CME. And the response we've had uh, has been, it's been surprising and exciting. And, and many of the, the specialty societies have been involved and, and have submitted to the collection. Yeah, no, and that'll be really exciting to see which papers uh, Reihard Grieben and Peter Henning accept and to end up discussing during 14 ECF itself. Um, they've certainly come back to us to request some flexibility in the session so that we make sure we cover a lot of those topics that you've just mentioned, whether it is uh, how artificial intelligence is developing, uh, the regulators changing their rules and adapting to, to the, so this post-COVID era, and also the digital literacy of, of learners and faculty as well. So we've all had to learn how to adapt so, to, this, to this new world. So, so yeah, as you said, there's sort of many negatives to to the pandemic but uh, there are some positives coming out of it and hopefully it'll serve CME well especially in Europe. Indeed and of course the one of the big imponderables is when we come out of Covid, well, I mean, we are coming out of Covid, <clears throat> will we go back to what we did before <clears throat> or will the experiment in digitization have a lasting effect? I rather think it will have and I suspect therefore that post-Covid will be quite quite different from pre-COVID and hopefully hopefully more interesting and, and, and more exciting. Yeah, actually, yeah, these are, these are all themes that will come out in 14 ECF. We've got other workshops and sessions where we're actually looking at specifically at yeah, what the future of meetings will look like and, and just what we've learned and how things will move forward. So it's fantastic that we've got uh, JECME as a rallying point for the, the more formal submissions. And, uh, and hopefully we'll hear much more about, about how the digital side of education will be coming to the fore in, in the future. And, um, and actually just looking at 14 ECF, why we are speaking today, you know, I, I'm booking conversations with the people who are going to be moderators during 14 ECF. And we've invited uh, a number of people. It would be fantastic you, that uh, you yourself will be in the studio in Manchester, which will be our central command and control centre for, for the meeting itself. And, and where we will be able to be in person, live around the table and coordinate other speakers through <clears throat> in-screen technology to be on, uh, on the spot, as it were, to, to hopefully make 14 ECF engaging visually engaging as as well as uh, you know the topics that we cover so so that uh, the people who um, do register for the meeting and and participate feel much more inclusive in the meeting uh, in a more sort of stage managed and visually engaging way um thinking about your session because you'll be looking after the second leg of the uh, the three-legged stool, as it were, looking at educational design and outcomes. But the last time we spoke about this, while planning it, it was so really interesting how you've funneled it down into a core idea, a core concept. Should we have a bit of a chat about that and how you ended up focusing on, on that particular topic? Well, I think, okay, I think that for a long time, CME people uh, have found it very difficult to shake off the old habits of curricular education. And so <clears throat> if, a, if a society was wondering what to do at its next annual Congress, it would say, well, we haven't done lung cancer for a few years. Why don't we do, uh, do lung cancer? We, we did um, occupational lung disease last year, so we can miss that out. Uh, and why don't, we do, uh, why don't we do some form of allergic lung disease this year? And so the, the, the program would be based almost, as, almost on the basis of a, a rolling curricular model. And that is not what we now know results in good CME because the research from the last 30, 40 years so strongly indicates that we should first of all look for a discrepancy, a gap between what is and what, and what should be. And that that should be the first step, not thinking what you did at your last year's Congress, we should be thinking, where are the gaps in, in the practice in our specialty? Uh, and that, should, that, that question should be answered as a result of a systematic search. The, the, the societies 
and not just the societies, hospitals, even individual doctors, should constantly be looking at their practice, wondering where the gaps are. And when they find a gap, then they've got to say, well, what is the cause of the gap? Is the gap because of bad physician performance or bad physician competence or physician ignorance? Or is it nothing to do with the physicians? Is it a system fault? Is it something wrong with, 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 with infrastructure in which the, the doctors are working? Um, or is it some cultural problem? But if it's to do with the doctor's performance, the physician's performance, then that is a gap that we can fill with CME. And that should be the basis upon which CME is designed, designed specifically to fix a gap, to fix a, a, to, to, to fix a discrepancy. And that's what Don Moore has been saying for years. <clears throat> and despite the fact that he's been saying it for a long time, and lots of people pay, pay lip service to the idea, Nevertheless, it has never quite come into practice in the way that I think Don Moore would like. And so you still go to an annual Congress of a European society, and most of the time you'll be sitting in a huge lecture theater, listening to somebody speaking for maybe half an hour, 40 minutes, with about five minutes, if you're lucky, for questions at the end. And, and it's, the, it's the antithesis of what, is, what, what should be what should constitute adult education. You remember the Benjamin Franklin quotation, <clears throat> at least attributed to him, tell me something and I'll forget it. Teach me something and I might remember, but involve me and I will remember. And so that's what we should be trying to do. We should be trying to get out of the big lecture theatres. We should be concentrating on topics that are relevant to deficiencies that we've discovered in our gap discovery, and we should be uh, trying to um, deliver education in a way that involves the learners, in a way that, that, that they'll actually remember what they, what they learn. And so that, I think, is, is what's been um, informing my thinking about uh, educational design in, in recent times. And of course, over the past uh, couple of years, while this has been coming to the fore, we're hearing from medical societies that they're a little worried that to actually identify these gaps might be hugely expensive for them. Uh, well, what do you think that, about this? I think that's a fair point. Um, I spoke to the European Respiratory Society a few years ago <clears throat> because they had decided to study their performance in dealing with COPD. And they did an enormous audit which cost a great deal of money and a lot of man hours, and they identified where, their, where the gaps were. The trouble was they were rather dull and boring and even predictable gaps. Um, and so when it came to devising education to, fi to fix these gaps, it didn't, uh, it didn't excite people. People said, oh, so what? This is all so tedious and, and predictable. And so when I said to the European Respiratory Society, uh, you really must um, in, improve your, uh, your efforts at, at discovering your gaps, they said, well, no, we won't do that. It costs too much in money and in time. And, and I, I, I have to sympathize with that. However, now that big data is becoming accessible by digitization, we may have to employ a new breed of, of, uh, of educationists, as it were, called a, a, data, a medical data scientist. People who, who are skilled at working with big data and asking the big data the questions, that the, uh, the questions relating to possible gaps and finding the answers to the questions by analyzing uh, the, the, the data uh, by means of their particular expertise. So I think that is, quite an exciting development, uh, and again, related to digitization, because <clears throat> without digitization, I think the societies are quite right to say, it is very difficult and very expensive, uh, easily to identify uh, gaps in practice. And that's, you know, maybe it's sort of being able to look at a problem at a slightly different angle, a less expensive angle. Um, you know, if the traditional gap is sort of identifying what should be done and then seeing what is being done in practice. Maybe you don't need to spend a huge amount of money to actually discover that there are easier ways of seeing this within hospital systems, or as you mentioned, through big data, 
or just uh, you know medical societies have known for for years about the uh, the low adherence to guidelines for example they spend years developing these uh, as in codifying what is best practice and then seeing that there is a gap in that yeah and i sometimes wonder does it need some kind of expensive analysis anyway to identify um the gap there if someone can actually like you're saying it's sort of that common sense approach to see where where the guidelines aren't being followed for example in a, in a particular area where it's important yes i think you, it's a fair point if you need to spend a lot of money with an expensive investigation to identify a gap it's possible that that gap is not very important and maybe the important gaps Will not will, will make themselves more easily evident because the practicing doctor will know if he stops to think that something's not quite right in, in this area or that area, and then he can confirm that by uh, going to one of these medical data scientists and say, "I think this may well be a gap. Can you look 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 uh, in the data to see if if the data support the if the data provide evidence to support the fact that there is a gap there." Sure. There are gaps are, as you know, there the, the types of gaps are quite interesting. Uh, Don Moore once said to me, <clears throat> there are three types of gaps. There are deficiency gaps, there are uh, development gaps, and there are confidence gaps. Uh, the deficiency gaps relate <clears throat> to usually to uh, competence and performance, whereas the development gaps relate to uh, new developments of which doctors may be ignorant and they just need, really need to be told this is now available having, having not been available before and that's an easy gap to fill and confidence gaps are when <clears throat> people are worried that what they're doing is still is not what they should be doing that something uh, has developed of which they're unaware and uh, they just want to be reassured in, in a learning experience that what they're doing is still okay. <clears throat> and in the to go back to the deficiency gaps, the interesting thing about deficiency gaps when you think about them is they are mostly to do with treatment. And that's partly because a lot of the big data relate to treatment and, the, and treatment outcomes. And also because a lot of CME is funded by the drug industry and they are interested primarily in treatment, because that's where they make their profits. But a lot of the gap, the big gaps in medical practice, relate actually to diagnosis. The step long before you come round to thinking about treatment, doctors very often don't get the right diagnosis straight away. Sometimes they never get it. And yet very little CME is directed at why doctors make bad diagnoses and, and what can be done to improve the doctor's diagnostic uh, ability. I think that's one of the, the, the growth points in CME, which up until now perhaps has, has not received the attention that it, that it should have. Sure, no, absolutely. And, the, and the, the drug industry actually, I'm sure will, well, they are spending much more time and effort in that area now, as we're moving towards personalized medicines where it's absolutely critical to actually get the diagno diagnosis correct in the first place otherwise there'll be a huge cost to the to the health service if they go down the wrong route for treating the patient yeah yeah so coming to your session itself the the way that we've talked about um uh, you'll be structuring this is is actually in in a way in a good sort of cme fashion where you'll be looking at sort of what the theory or the best practice is in um, educational design and uh, you're from a number of perspectives. And uh, so what are you hoping to actually uncover from, from the experts that you will have uh, on the panel? What would you like them to, to highlight? Well, we're going to have input from representatives of the specialist societies. And so it'll be interesting to hear what, what they say. Um, will, they, will they tell us that they're becoming more interested in discovering gaps? Will they tell us that they've changed their approach to gap discovery because of digitization or that they've changed the way that uh, they design their education because of digitization? I think that'll all be very interesting. 
we're going to have input from the pharmaceutical industry. As you know, there's still um, a very lively discussion going on between parts of the CME community and uh, the, the industry, um, and it, it, at times still quite acrimonious, with the industry saying, um, we want to uh, be more recognized as being proper people to deliver or to be associated with accredited education. And with some members of the CME community saying, no, you can't be associated with accredited education because you have a, such a big conflict of interest. Uh, and that argument is still going on uh, in, in recent times, as you know, in, in articles in the BMJ, with a particular person attacking <clears throat> the, the industry for being biased and, and for uh, deli only delivering biased um, education. And representatives of the accreditation community coming back and saying, no, that is not so, that accreditation, it, at least in America, is now so sophisticated that they are confident that biased CME does not, is not uh, delivered by accredited providers. So it'll be interesting to hear, I think, what industry, industry says. <clears throat> and then, of course, we're going to have in the session an accreditor. And it'll be very interesting, interesting to hear current views about the relevance and the importance and the effectiveness of accreditation. Uh, and also, perhaps we might stray into the dispute between what is the best way to accredit CME? Is, is it better to do as they do in, in North America and accredit providers? Or is it better to do as, as it usually happens in Europe to accredit individual educational activities? And we've had that argument for a long, long time. We've had articles in JECME um, from North America uh, putting forward provider accreditation as, if you like, a, a better way of, of doing accreditation. And we've had resistance from that view from Europe, uh, where they still, many people in Europe still believe <clears throat> that activity accreditation is preferable to provider accreditation. I think it is important that we try to come to some kind of consensus about that, because it seems strange that if accreditation is so important, how can it be that we have two entirely different ways of doing it? And we have never faced up to which of them is better. Because if we knew which were better, at least we would know that's the best way to do it. We may not choose to do it for political or other reasons, but at least we, ought, we would know which was the better way. And at some stage, hopefully, we would be able to rationalize or harmonize what we do so that we're all, if you like, singing from the same hymn sheet. So that would be accreditation, uh, the societies, uh, the industry. And then would we want to talk about the learners, uh, the learners perspective? Yeah, I think um, covering the learners perspective, what learners would hope to gain from uh, a well-designed education that is accredited and developed in an appropriate way. So, so it certainly would be useful to have the learner perspective uh, in this as well. Well, I think so, because I think the CMA community has been quite good at talking to itself over all the time I've been involved. There's plenty of discussion, but it's always discussion within the CMA community. And that discussion has not been transmitted out of the CMA community towards the learners. So the learners, and after all, it's all been done for their benefit. Hopefully the patients subsequently benefit. But the learners do, don't really know much about CME. They don't know, uh, they don't know anything about the research in CME. They don't know any, any of the current ideas which are motivating the thinkers behind, the, the thinkers behind um, the, who are developing modern CME. And so somehow or other, we have to involve the, le the learners more in our discussions. How you do that, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> yeah, no, it was fascinating, actually, the last time we met in person at 12 ECF, two years ago, and um, Minal Singh came to the meeting and was describing how, how she, as the person leading the 
redesign of the undergraduate curriculum for the medical school in Manchester, which is the, the largest medical school in, in Europe. And uh, she's been redesigning the curriculum and has deliberately put in sessions there for the second years or third years to actually uh, learn about CME and how to approach their own lifelong learning and uh, for it to be on the curriculum there in the early years. So they're already being prepared for their own future education as they progress through their careers. Well, I, I, that, I'm sure that's a very good idea. And of course, one of the reasons that hasn't happened is because CME has been separate from the medical schools. But if in future the medical schools are going to accept that they have a responsibility to teach, their, their, teach the medical students what CME is all about, how best to use it, how to exploit it to their, to their greatest benefit, then that can only be a good thing. So I think that's a very, very encouraging development. Um, you were also talking about the providers. And of course, uh, we have, I've not, I didn't mention originally providers, but I should have. <clears throat> we're, I think in the session, we clearly want to hear what the providers say. Of course, there are two main types of providers. There are independent uh, CME providers, such as yourself, and there are providers associated usually with the societies. And very often the, the, the societies and the independent uh, providers work together. Perhaps a society might identify a gap, but not feel they had the competence to devise, the devise and deliver the education themselves. And so they would go to an independent provider and say, here's a gap. We know what caused the gap. We think we know how to design education to fill the gap, but we're not sure. Can you help us in this way? And the education, the independent provider knows the rules, knows how to be compliant with the rules, and knows the, uh, the modern theories behind delivering modern and effective CME. And so it's a very, it's a very good association to develop. And, and I think it would be interesting to hear uh, from providers, both sets of providers, how they feel this is going. And also, we'd want, I think, to know what they think about accreditation, because <clears throat> although accreditation is justified in terms of prote protecting the, the learner from bias and conflict and so on, <clears throat> the provider is the provider who's got to suffer all the bureaucratic uh, demands of the accreditation industry, uh, which makes life as a provider much more difficult and indeed makes it much more expensive. Oh, indeed. And actually we'll be covering that um, during the second session on Thursday. There'll be a bit more during the rules regulation sessions and especially, yeah, it's not just the rules around accreditation, but just how each of the stakeholder groups interact with the expectations, yeah, the rules around how, how they work and just the purpose of accreditation. Does it do what it's supposed to do? Does CME accreditation actually say that an educational activity has been well designed and developed? Does it actually say that it's independent? Does it actually give the credit that the learners actually need at the end of the day? And, and there, there are di different reasons for getting an activity accredited, but it's it's the sort of the quality and, and the yeah, especially the quality and the independence, which which really should be the overriding uh, sort of stamp that goes along with the, with the accreditation, which we will spend a bit of time looking at as well um, in uh, in session two. It's very difficult to be sure that accreditation is actually improving the quality of the education and or improving the performance of the physicians, because it's very difficult to study that. We know, for example, that in one of the German lander, Westphalia Lipia, they had something like 33,000 educational events two years ago. And of, of these, they, they approved 99.9%. Now, if you've got an examination with a pass rate of 99.9%, you have to say, does anyone really need this examination? I mean, imagine having the driving test where 99.9% .9 people pass the test. People would say, this test is not necessary. 
And so you, you could make the case for saying, in, with at least with activity accreditation, maybe it's not serving any useful purpose. Now, the argument against that would be, if they weren't there as accreditors, people would behave less well. And that may be true. In terms of provider accreditation, provider accreditation by its very nature <clears throat> encourages providers to behave better, to make a bigger effort to engage in modern uh, CME practices. And if, as you remember, Murray Coppola used to talk about <clears throat> the community of practice. In, in other words, a community of practice was <clears throat> generated between the accreditation agency, ACCME, and the providers. And that as a result of the community of practice, the providers uh, provided better, as it were. Now, that may be true, but of course, there's no definite proof of it. The whole, the, the, the justification for having an accreditation industry is not desperately well-founded. And you have to say, what is so different about medicine from the other professions? Because lawyers and teachers and engineers, they, they, they have CME, not CME, they have professional development, but it usually doesn't have to have been accredited. I think, I may be wrong, but I think medicine and, and health professions in general are the only areas where continuing education has to go through some accreditation agency before it can safely be uh, uh, delivered to the learners. That's, that's a really interesting point. But I wonder if in these and other industries that the education is actually provided by the organisation itself. So if we're looking at the CPD that lawyers or electricians, they'd have to go to the organisation themselves. So actually, this is quite strange. We, we've got this sort of intermediate step. CME for the medical community is, is unique in this way, I'm sure. And perhaps neither system actually is uh, is easy, but but I think I like this uh, the term you know the community of practice. I think we've seen that as European CME Forum over the years is that people are coming together much more, and you know we as Europeans when we go to the meetings in the US, you know whether it's the Alliance meeting or the ACCME meetings, um, I've I've always been struck by how collaborative um the the setting is you know how people in the room are willing to share their experiences their practices in order to help each other out and there really is a sense of community of practice and actually when we first started european cme forum that's what i was hoping for is to have more dialogue because for years in europe it it was a continuation of the sort of the, the medcoms kind of industry um there's a lot of siloed thinking people looking at each other with suspicion as competitors and not wanting to share their amazing ideas just in case someone will end up uh, uh, being more successful than themselves. And I think in the European CME Forum meetings, we're now seeing much more sharing of opinions, people publishing in JECME, giving presentations on what they've done as organizations and sharing their practices so, so I think we, this, this sort of the idea of the community of practice really helps, and and the, yeah, it is certainly having a provider accreditation based system where you have a group of people who actually want to make the system better does improve the environment. And having an event based accreditation system where the various providers hardly know of the existence of each other, they rarely see what other organisations are doing. Um, you know, there, there isn't this sharing of practice. And also uh, in Europe, the accreditors, quite frankly, aren't very good at sharing their information. We might, if we are lucky, know how many activities they're accrediting a year. But when it comes to quality or their standards or the lessons they're learning or reasons why they've rejected education or them educating providers, I mean, this is really scant. It just doesn't happen in Europe. And, and it was interesting when you're talking about the German example, I think the only time where we've actually had a serious sanction in Europe, um, and I'm, I'm now sort of just trying to think about uh, a num number of things, but you know, was, uh, two years ago, the German authorities, it went through the German courts, identified there was an organization that was presenting education as CME accredited education, and they uh, determined that the organization was actually not <coughs> as independent as they said, that they were actually developing education according to briefs of the commercial supporters. Uh, 
Uh, so in, in essence, it was a medcoms agency presenting CME activity, and the the Germans they actually ordered the closure of the company. So the um, the, the, the sanctions are there, and but, but Germany is ahead of the curve, I think, in Europe. CME is is much more discussed openly in the public. It does hit the newspapers. There's more awareness. Uh, among the profession as well as as well as the public and people associated with it so uh, yeah and, and they do accredit a huge number hundreds of thousands of activities a year you know, compared to the rest of europe there's probably several times more than the rest of europe combined so yeah. you do have a much more mature system there but you yourself are in, in almost a unique position in that you have experience of both systems you uh, for years and years uh, you your organization just existed uh, with activity accreditation. And then you became the first European uh, CME firm to be uh, accredited by ACCME. Uh, uh, in, in other words, you have first-hand experience of both activity and provided accreditation, which probably very few other people are in that position. Perhaps you should write a paper about this, Eugene. You're <laughs> I know we were thinking about this, yeah, but it's, um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's been quite a journey and it's very interesting how this is done. And of course, we've had activities accredited under many systems. I, I think it's over 35 different systems around the world, um, you know, in addition to the ACCME um, process and each accreditor approaches accreditation in a different way. And and actually, it's a lot of the time it just falls off. the The accreditors don't well. We get the sense they don't know quite what they're looking for. But even just looking at the rules in in Europe, whether it's national or the more um, European rules, the activity accreditation systems actually there are two. One is for accreditation of live events, and the other way is the accreditation of enduring events, you know, or e learning. And, and actually, it is quite strange because for activity accreditation, you just need to identify the faculty and the topics and maybe present the needs assessment. But for the accreditation of the enduring materials, the e-learning, you actually have to develop all the education and have it finally done in place. And then someone else reviews it and accredits that. So, so it's like two types of activity accreditation. One is just done on the promise and the other one is done on the final, final presentation. So, so even, even so this one system becomes actually two completely different sets of uh, two, two different approaches. And, um, yeah, and as, as you say, there's, there's, there's no ideal solution anywhere. But uh, but it's but what is clear is that this really needs to be worked out. I mean, I, I think as far as European CME Forum is concerned, you know, the way the 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 meeting has been evolving over the past few years, and what we've seen during the pandemic, is that accredited education, I, I think, is not what what we're led to believe. Sometimes the promise isn't there. You know, that CME certificate at the end of the day doesn't quite mean what. It's supposed to mean, uh, in that uh, you know, even if it is a stamp of quality, um, the credit itself might not be recognised in the country. The physicians themselves don't need the CME credit because the country's actually then, then regulators don't ask of it anymore. You know, we in the UK, you see, it, it doesn't matter whether an activity is accredited or not, whether it's controlled by drug companies or not, or whether it's good quality or bad quality. It's as long as the individual physician has actually said, I attended this activity, I spent two hours at it, does some kind of reflection, that's enough. The self-certification process is, is, uh, is enough to satisfy the requirements, which is actually quite a, quite a distance from the kind of CME that we discuss as European CME Forum or, or INJECME. And um, uh, yeah, so the relevance really needs to be, to be looked at, but I, but I think, you know, there is some promise, you know, the International Academy of CPD Accreditors is doing a lot of interesting work now, actually looking at accreditation standards to ensure that stamp of quality uh, does have a standard meaning across borders as well. And then whether they move on to come up with the unified credit of some kind is a, is a conversation for the future, of course. But it's a really important first step, I think, to actually bring out what the requirements are for accreditation and how this can be standardized across borders. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, and I think one of the areas that I think the accreditation agencies so far have not paid enough attention to 
is informal workplace CME. Because we now know that informal workplace CME is probably more relevant to improving practice than formal CME. Uh, because informal CME is happening all the time. But particularly now with um, mobile phones being um, used uh, so, so often and with enduring material easily unavailable on the mobile phone such as up to date. If a doctor is seeing a patient in a ward round or uh, on a, in a clinic and he comes across something he doesn't know, it's just a matter of seconds to pull his phone out and, and ask the question of, of up to date. Or alternatively, weekly MDT meetings, multidisciplinary team meetings. They started off as a, 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 an instrument for improving patient care. <clears throat> but it became evident as they became established that by putting a lot of doctors together to discuss the clinical problems of the week was an enormously useful uh, learning experience. And yet it's still not appreciated as being an important learning experience. And so it's, it's, uh, it's not well structured and it's not, it's not, it's effectiveness is not, no one is attempting to measure its effectiveness. Although we all believe that it is effective and the accreditation agencies so far have shown remarkably little interest in infor informal CME. But one thing is certainly clear, that activity accreditation cannot really cope with it. Because every time someone takes out his phone to look up something on UpToDate, he's not going to make a note to request um, a tenth of a credit for that or a fiftieth of a credit for that. Um, and every time someone goes to an MDT meeting, he's not going to submit the, uh, the proceedings of the meeting to see if uh, it was a good learning experience. Whereas provider accreditors can accredit up to date and they can accredit the hospital CME department. Um, and and, and in, in that way, the CME activities can be accredited. Uh, the in, informal ones can be accredited. And that's important because with the, with the recognition of the, in, the increasing recognition of the importance of informal CME, it makes no sense only to accredit external formal CME. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and as you say, under the ACCME system, this is possible. Um, yeah, as long as the education has professional practice gap has been identified, the appropriate uh, education has been put together and it's done under the, under the required conditions, it can count for CME. So, so it is completely possible to have informal learning uh, accredited like this, but yeah, under the European systems, it's not. And it does close a lot of doors, and especially in our digitized world now, where, as you say, people want that bite-sized education. Um, you know, why can't we have a system and actually opening it up to providers in the community of practice to show the accreditors how this can be done? Because you know, the, the organizations there are creating the education and, um, and can demonstrate how learners are tracked, for example, but to count smaller educational interactions like this is, is very important. Actually, we've just had a survey come back on a, another project from my provider organization. And, and I was looking at the results this morning and, um, and we had something like the 350 learners coming back in a survey and very few of them appreciated one hour long education. They're all talking about, we want this kind of education in 10 minute sections, 15 minute sections. That's what the learners want. This is what they've got used to. And, um, and even a few years ago, when we were talking at European CME Forum meeting about sort of the role of social media in CME, where mm. people would sort of say, yeah, it's interesting, but it won't happen. But now we're seeing it, whether it's through Twitter or LinkedIn, the technology is there to be able to present smaller bite-sized education that draws them into a, a controlled educational area, sure. But, but this is what people are after. They don't want to click through and be told that they have to work through a curriculum, but a couple of clicks, learn something for 10, 15 minutes, move on to the next thing is, is really, this, this is, I think we need to listen to how our learners are behaving and, and provide them really what, what they want to engage with. And of course, up to date now has the capacity to register every, every inquiry, as it were, 
from, from the learner. And the learner is credited by up to date for the, the time uh, he or she spent uh, um, uh, obtaining information. And that, that can't be a bad thing. Sure, sure. Now, and we should say to our listeners at this stage that Robin doesn't have shares in uh, in this company. <laughs> but we, we have been uh, at a number of meetings now and, of course, up to date have published their findings in JECME in the special collection last year. So this is all publicly available information. And, uh, and of course, they've negotiated with the accreditors in Europe to actually um, to, to come up with ways where, where this can be recognised. Um, so, so really, yeah, as part of, as a valuable member of our community of practice, I suppose we are grateful to um, organisations like this to really sort of pushing, pushing ideas forward and, and making the CME environment that much more efficient and better in Europe. And it was very nice that UpToDate did submit to the JECME last year because they're not, they've not been in the habit of trying to document their activities. Uh, and it was nice that we were able to persuade them to do so. And as you know, uh, Wendy Walsh submitted a very nice paper to the journal. Fantastic, Robin, thank you so much. Let's continue um, planning our guest editors of JECME for the opening of the session and, uh, and the way that will feed into the other sessions. We'll all be on site in the studio in Manchester and I'm really looking forward to seeing you there. Well, thank you very much. I've very much enjoyed it, although I almost lost my voice. Great. Thank you, Robin. Bye-bye. That was Robin Stevenson, Editor-in-Chief of JACME, joining me to discuss his involvement at the 14th Annual European CME Forum and his learnings from his long-standing career in medicine and CME. Registration is open for the 14th Annual Meeting, and if you complete our annual survey, you will receive a 10% discount. Your registration will also give you access to the complete archive of the 13th Annual European CME Forum, consisting of all the plenary and workshop sessions with over 18 hours of CME CPD content from a faculty of 70 experts in European and global CME. More information on the upcoming 14th Annual European CME Forum and this year's JECME Special Collection can be found on our website, cmeforum.org. Thank you for listening and join us for more episodes as we explore all things CME CPD.